Even if you can't sing, you can sing, right? That, that song just can't be left alone. Matter of fact, I'm thinking that's like a sermon in itself, and we could all go home right now, but not. I'm going to do Romans. Romans chapter 1, if you're joining us for the first time, um, we started a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago actually, in Romans, and I've uh, got through verses 1 and 2 the first week and got through verses 3 and 4 the uh, second week. Today we're going to be in 5, 6, and 7. And you're beginning to understand why this is going to take a couple years to do, right? Okay. Um, I, I want to pray with you before we get into the text this morning. Just uh, one detail for you. If, if you make New Hope your church home, perhaps you know Gary and Libby Stripko, and I just want to mention an item for you that you can be in prayer for them about. Last night, um, Libby's sister died in a house fire, and uh, she's in her early 50s. Her name is Tammy. And so we want to be in prayer for the family, all right? Um, Gary and Libby will have just... Um, Amazing opportunity to minister and serve to their own family. Um, there'd be a lot of questions, obviously. So we want to pray that God would just surround them with wisdom and with his compassion, but also that God would bless us as we read his word this morning. So would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are especially broken for the Stripco family and for this great loss. And, and God, I ask you to be especially near to Libby as she's lost her sister. And such a tragic thing that didn't catch you by surprise because we know that you know all things and yet there's a purpose in this, Father, and we just don't know what it is. So we ask that you would accomplish your purpose and that you especially give strength and wisdom to the family in the midst of this. And Father, as there's questions asked and people probe and try and figure out what happened, God, that you, you would be near that you would bless Libby and Gary and the kids with wisdom to be able to speak truth into this. Father, that they would represent you well. I ask for your, your just compassionate, loving arms to surround them right now. Bring them comfort, Father. Father, as we turn our attention to Romans and we understand that you want to speak to us, you desire to do that, and you give us a written record of your thoughts that we would take this this morning, this opportunity to draw closer to you. We've just declared who you are in song. And our hearts are ready. We're primed. We really want to know you. So God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would reveal your call upon our life. As we study this, we pray for this and ask for the teaching and the power of your Holy Spirit to come upon us. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me take you back to Romans chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you find them in the rack around you, but uh, you can also follow along on the screen. You can watch that way. L let's look where we've been so far. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we finished so far. Let's go into verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. In the big picture, when Paul uses the word we, you see it three words into it, through whom we, when he's using the word we, it's both plural and singular. 
He has received God's grace, but also you and I have received God's grace this morning, have we not, church? We can say that definitively. So we understand Paul's speaking both plural and singular. God, through Jesus, delivered something. He's made it available, and it's called grace. And it came to us through what Jesus did. So here we come into the major components of this climactic finish to his introduction. Verses 1 through 7 are an introduction to Romans, by the way. And so verses 5, 6, and 7 are just the climax of it. And the major components of that are found in these last couple verses. He says, we've received both grace and we've received an assignment. And we received it for a purpose. And do you see the purpose right there in verse 5? To bring about the obedience of faith. Meaning this right away, right off the bat. We did not receive God's grace for ourselves alone. It's a reality check. We didn't receive God's grace for ourselves alone. Yes, we're saved through it. Yes, absolutely, we get this new creation. We get forgiveness of our sins. And it's very, very personal. All true. But there's another aspect to this grace. God expects it to reverberate out from our lives to others. Why? So that they would discover grace as well. So we'll come back to that thought, but I want to put a handle on grace first. Many people have heard the word grace, and most times you hear in churches what it's not. We say things like, grace is not merited, meaning we don't deserve it, right? But we also understand that grace is not earned, and that's shocking. I don't care if you grew up in church or if you're new to church. That's a shocking thing for people to really grasp. I can't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to deserve it. I didn't contribute anything to the process. Remember Ephesians 2.8? Look, look with me on the screen, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what, church? The what? The gift. It's the gift of God. I didn't do anything to earn it. I like the way that Eugene Peterson captured it. He, he wrote the message. It's a paraphrase of the Bible, kind of an easy-to-read version of the Bible. And he said it this way, Ephesians 2.8, Saving is all his idea and all his work. It's God's gift from start to finish. Kind of a concise way to say it. That might be new news to you this morning. That might be completely new news if you grew up in a tradition where you were taught it's something that you earned. No one probably ever said that to you. No one probably ever said to you, you can earn God's salvation. But it comes out in ways like this. If you do just enough good things, God God will like you. God may even let you in one day. Maybe the scales will tip in your favor. Maybe if I'm good just long enough throughout my life, God will wink and say, you've been a good girl, come on in. That's what we hear from relatives, right? That's what we hear at family reunions. That's what we hear from neighbors and friends thinking they can earn God's favor. My Catholic friends, they especially struggle with this. They get really irritated when they read Ephesians 2.8 because throughout their life, someone has taught them that they have to earn it, that they have to do certain things to stay in line in order to keep God's favor. And then when they come to Ephesians 2.8 and they see, wait, it's a gift of God, then they get irritated. How come nobody ever told me this before? I don't know if you've got friends like that as well, people who think they can earn God's favor. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. Somebody say amen. amen. This is the truth of God's word. So that's not what it's not. How do I understand what it is? 
My mind's kind of simple, so I think in simple analogies, right? So I'm going to think in this simple analogy. Grace is the vehicle by which God delivers salvation to us. So here's my simple analogy. If I place an order, or someone here at the church places an order for an item, perhaps we need a piece of office equipment delivered, we might get online and place an order with Amazon or one of our suppliers, and eventually UPS will pull up to the door and they'll drop off a package, and if it's got my name on it, it's because I placed the order for it, right? Okay, let's think in, in terms of grace that way. God delivers salvation through this vehicle called grace. You come to the place where you recognize that Jesus is the Savior and you can have forgiveness of your sins. Only those who trust in Jesus get this delivery that comes to their front door. Now God doesn't delay it like Amazon does sometimes. There's no three, four days wait. It's instant. You recognize who Jesus is, God says, I'm right there for you. It's a special delivery. I'm bringing it right to you. See, I told you it was a simple analogy, right? Okay, but we can all relate to that. God delivers salvation through this vehicle called grace, and it comes only and through and because of Jesus, not because of our actions. And I need to remind us of that, especially if you grew up in a denominational-type thinking. And I'm speaking to you Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Wesleyans and Nazarenes, I'm not leaving anybody out. I'm trying not to, right? I'm going to put us all under the tent. Hear this. Salvation does not come by baptism. It doesn't come by confirmation class or communion or catechism or church membership or by being kind or keeping the Ten Commandments. And it's not by being morally upright or respectable or generous. And it doesn't come by mere mental acknowledgement that there's a God. Even the demons believe that. Jesus encountered individuals who were demon-possessed who fell on their knees and said, what do we have to do with you, son of the most high God? They knew exactly who he was. Was there a relationship? No. It doesn't come that way. It comes only and through and because of Jesus. So Scripture says, Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. God's grace is only coming to you one way. I want somebody to be praying right now because I believe somebody can come to Christ as a result of hearing this. Only one way. When a person recognizes they're a sinner, and when they recognize they're a sinner and they repent of that sinful life, they, they can receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers them. It all happens because of what Jesus did on the cross and God stamped the guarantee because of the resurrection. That's what we celebrate that's the truth of God's word. You want to receive Jesus this morning? You can do it right now. You can do it right there in your seat. I don't care that we're only 10 minutes into the message. If you need forgiveness of your sin, just talk to the Father right now. Say, I believe this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. You listen online? Do it. Do it right where you're sitting. God says, I did this for you. It's a gift. I brought it to you. You want to receive it? Tell me. I'll bring you that forgiveness. Now, Paul says you and I received grace. He says that right there in verse 5. We received grace, and then he says we received apostleship. Now, we really need to understand what he's saying here. The word that we talked about a couple weeks ago is this word apostolos, and it, it literally means one being sent. You might remember the analogy I gave you in which Caesar sent ships out on the open sea carrying cargo, and specifically he sent them to a, a port. Those were called apostolic ships because they had a specific destination. They were going for a purpose. 
When this word apostolos is used of a person, it means somebody who's been sent out for a purpose. Now, when Paul's talking about himself, he's talking about the office of apostle. Now, there's only 13 of those guys. There's the 12 disciples who walk with Jesus. And then there's Paul who met him on the road to Damascus. Those guys filled the office of an apostle, and they were specific individuals. They've got this unique authority where they can declare God's word and they can confirm it through miracles. But every Christian also is an apostle in a broad sense in this way. We have all been sent by Jesus into the world, have we not, church? Every one of us, we've all been sent. Jesus said that in Matthew 28. You're going to go out into the world and you're going to teach people to become disciples of mine. But if you're uncomfortable with that thought that maybe God's calling you an apostle, let me back it up with Scripture a little bit. Paul called people apostles who were not part of the original 12. Look with me up on the screen, Romans 16, 7. He said, these individuals are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Who's he talking about? Andronicus and Junius, two individuals who are not part of the 12. And, and then we find in Acts 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. And then in Philippians, we, we find that Epaphroditus is also called an apostle. Here's why. Anyone representing the Savior has apostle-like duties. And that means something for you this morning. If you've identified yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, it means something for you. It means everyone who is saved has been called to a responsibility. Because Jesus never delivers a conversion without a commission. You hear that? Jesus never delivers a conversion without a commission. He's called you to something. So when we're saved as a gift of God and not as a result of our works, we get that. That makes sense to us and we're good with that. But when God saves us, we're also saved to carry out God's will for our life here on planet Earth. God has a purpose for you on this planet. I don't know if you knew that this morning. God has a specific purpose for your salvation on this planet. You know what that means? It means you weren't saved just for eternity. Can I back that up? Yep, let me take you back to Ephesians again. Ephesians 2.10, it says specifically, you are his workmanship. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what church? Good works, right? Which God prepared beforehand, before, before what? Before you were ever even saved. He prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. Doesn't sound like eternity, right? Sounds like something going on here on planet Earth. And, and this is where many believers check out. We're good with salvation. I'm, I'm good with eternity. I got my ticket stamped. But man, now you're asking me to do something? And here's how many people check out. They tend to disqualify themselves. And it sounds like this. I, I hear what you're saying, Mark, but I want you to know I'm, I'm not worthy. Oh. Welcome to the club, okay? I'm not either. And then one step further would say, I'm not trained, and I'm not capable. I'll deal with those three in just a minute, worthy, trained, and capable, but here's, here's the one that is probably most irritating to God. I'm not interested, okay? Now, we would never say that, right? Especially in a church setting, but internalizing it, is just the same thing. I'm, I'm just not that interested. Well, let me deal with this one of I'm not worthy, I'm not trained, I'm not capable argument first. 
If I mention the name D.L. Moody, most of you know who that is if you grew up in church at all. But if you're new to church, you wouldn't know who Moody is. He's a guy who lived in the 1800s. And D.L. Moody is most known today because of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and Moody Bible Church in Chicago. But let me tell you, this guy's got a really, really fascinating story. What you may not know about him is that at four years of age, he lost his daddy. And so he's growing up in a fatherless home. And his mom could not afford to feed him and all the siblings. So she put the children out as laborers, as children, to earn their own keep. And they earned room and board. So D.L. Moody was put out as a child, a young boy, to work on a farm earning cornbread and oatmeal and milk. That was his day after day after day. He got served the exact same thing. They gave him room and board, but that's all they could give him. Now, at age 22, somebody introduced him to Jesus, this guy who had grown up without much of an education whatsoever, and he became a force for the kingdom. If you know D.L. Moody and you've heard about him at all, would you agree with that statement? He's just an incredible force. So what we would think of as an evangelist, think of Billy Graham living in the 1800s. So he became a force for the kingdom. So Moody traveled the world. Thousands of people responded to the invitations when he presented who Jesus is. Eventually, he came to pastor a church in Chicago. It's known as the Chicago Avenue Bible Church. Today, it's known as Moody Bible Church. The Chicago Avenue Church where he pastored saw many people come to Christ on a weekly basis. One particular Sunday, even though he was really, really weak in his education and in his grammar, people responded, came up to the front, wanted to talk to him about what it meant to become a Christ follower. And then after everybody left, one intelligent individual who was a professor of English and, and linguistics at a nearby university said to him, uh, Mr. Moody, I want you to know that you had 11 grammatical errors in your teaching this morning, okay? And Moody's response, incredibly gracious, was this. Um, yeah, you're probably right. My early education was very, very faulty, but I'm using whatever I have for the master's service. Okay, great answer, right? Another week, and a, a same scenario, people coming to Christ, and a man waits for everybody to leave, and then after they've all left, he comes up to Moody, and he says, you know, I watched what just happened here. I watched the invitation that you made, people coming to Christ, but that's not the way to do an invitation. I don't like the way that you do it, okay? Mr. Moody, being very gracious again, his response was this. You're right. I'm personally very uncomfortable with it myself. I'm not that good at it. However, I'm doing the very best I can, but it makes me uncomfortable. What's your method? Feel the pain in that pause, right? Okay. His response, well, I don't have one. And Moody's response says, well, I like mine better then, okay? <laughs> okay, here's my reason for bringing that up. Whatever your limitation is, church, will God use you if you're willing no matter your limitation, if you're willing, D.L. Moody, if you read some of his writings, he really, really struggled. But God calls us to salvation. And then he calls you for more than salvation. So your grace that you've been given, this grace is not a gift for private use only. You don't just keep it to yourself. It's given as God's gift to further God's purposes. But what's the purposes? We find it in verse 5. He comes right out and says, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, we use this word apostolos already. We're talking about people who've been sent. 
There's these two major components that we have here going on in this walk with Jesus that you and I know. When he says to bring about the obedience of faith, what he's talking about is bringing people to Jesus and helping them to obey all that he's commanded them. Where have I heard that before? That sounds a lot like Matthew 28, doesn't it? Go out and make disciples and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Look with me on the screen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Who said that, church? That's right. It's a Jesus answer. It's an easy one, right? Okay. Jesus said, go out and win people. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know, just the very simple thing that Michael asked you to do this morning, just by texting your friends and letting them know that we're streaming live, that's exactly what we're talking about here in Matthew 28. You got friends that don't go to church, maybe they would watch online though, maybe they're streaming right now. That's reaching out to people who don't know Jesus, that maybe they tune in and they think, wow, this is new news to me, I want to hear more about this stuff. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes a step further. He says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. What did Jesus just do? He's linked the obedience of the faith with the word of God. Where do you find all that Jesus commanded us to do? The word, right? The Bible, God's word. So he's linked the two together. So the obedience of the faith is linked to the word of God. Hear this. Maybe you're writing notes this morning. Write this down maybe in your Bible or in your notes. Genuine faith. Legitimate faith is obedient to the Word of God. It's the truth of Scripture. Genuine faith is obedient to the Word of God. So if true faith is proven in obedience, is the opposite true? I want you to ponder this question for just a moment. We're told that true faith is proven in its obedience. Is it always true that a disobedient faith proves itself false. You, you need to really ponder that. And I know there's different stages to this. I've, I've already had some pushback this weekend. So, some individuals who wanted to have questions about this last night, we stayed for 20 minutes after the Saturday night service talking this issue through. What we see and we understand as we read through the Bible that we're all gonna have Peter moments, right? We're all going to have these moments where we stumble and we find ourselves trapped up in sin and in doubt and weak faith. But then it's also true that many of us know individuals, myself included, individuals who say they follow Jesus Christ, but they keep living as though there's no presence of the Holy Spirit in them whatsoever. And by that, I mean even a measurable margin. I want you to ponder that thought. Is it always true that a disobedient faith proves itself false as we move forward? Because this is, this is going to make you squirm a little bit as we move forward. Here's my thought. Someone who claims to be a Christ follower, but their pattern of life is complete disobedience to God's word, is not someone who lost their salvation. Because you can't lose your salvation, right? It's God's word. You can't lose it. So what's going on there? How do I understand that? Is it possible? Now we're talking about an individual who is never saved and maybe they're living a lie. It's a farce. 
I want you to ponder that as we move into this and look at this word obedience. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. You're going to see it on the screen and understand the way that Paul was using the word obedience. It was kind of freaky to the people of the first century because obedience wasn't part of the Greek language. It was a word that Christians coined. It was familiar in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament days, but it wasn't known to the people of the New Testament era. Paul brings this word obedience in, and it, and it means specifically what it says, this attentive hearkening, I hear, I see what I'm reading, and am I complying? Is there submission to it? So hear me out on this. Would you agree that true salvation transforms? True salvation transforms you, meaning this, the Holy Spirit of the living God takes up residence and it causes you to want to stop a sinful lifestyle. Now, you may be struggling. You may have Peter moments in your life where you constantly find yourself tripping, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person who egregiously doesn't even try to defeat the sin in their life. My thought is a person who doesn't even try or see a need they really better check themselves. Better check themselves on, is this real to me? Or am I just playing a game? Because a faith, a faith that does not evidence itself in obedient living, it's worthless. That's not even Mark Kring's words. Those are God's words. Look with me on the screen at James 2, James 2.20. Faith without works is useless. James 2.26 for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You know what he's comparing that to? It's like saying there's a coffin with a dead body in it. There's no spirit in that dead body. He's comparing that to a person who doesn't show any evidence of faith in their life. So James is making a logical argument. His argument is this, what evidence of life change do you show? It's really clear, we're not saved by works, right church? We're not saved by works, but it's clear. No, we're saved to good works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to good works, meaning to do them. That is the purpose for your salvation on this planet. Yes, your salvation is for eternity, but your salvation is also for while you're living life on this planet. To belong in relationship to God is to belong to him in obedience. It means recognizing his lordship. If God is Lord, and he is, right? God's Lord. If God is Lord, that means he's sovereign. Uh, we don't really understand that because we live in a democracy. But in this world where they had kings and there was nobody voted into office, they understood what it meant to be sovereign. It means you have the right to order and rule all things, no questions asked especially his own people who say, I've been called by grace. I'm saved, amazing grace. I've been forgiven of my sins. Well, God certainly has the right to be sovereign over those people. So we understand he loves us immeasurably, right? Beyond measure. But at the same time, we recognize he's master. He's supreme. He's sovereign. The Bible recognizes no other form of relationship. It'd be absolutely unthinkable to be in a relationship of continual disobedience. Just transfer that over to the marriage world, right? Well, th think of a marriage relationship for a minute. 
Think of a, a marriage relationship where one member of the relationship, one spouse, is constantly, always completely faithful and does everything that is expected of them, while the other member of the relationship is constantly, constantly, egregiously unfaithful. Even a person who doesn't walk with God would look at a marriage relationship like that on planet Earth and say, that's a relationship? That looks more like a lie to me. That's a, that's a farce. That's God's argument with us. Say, how can you say you belong to me, you're in relationship with me, but yet you're completely disobedient? A mindset that refuses to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ denies the very core of biblical Christianity. Let me illustrate this with Scripture. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's a great verse, right? We're told, I mean, that's Easter morning. We're all over that. Like, yeah, he's raised from the dead. I believe that. I'm saved as a result. Yes. But back up, church. Look at the beginning of the verse. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. Paul brilliantly brings that out in the beginning because the core of Jesus' teaching is that faith without obedience is not saving faith. That's why you find Jesus giving illustrations all the time, like people walking down a wide road. He says, oh, those people going down this broad path, broad is the path that leads to destruction. That's an easy one to walk. Narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. Or he talks about the house that's built upon sand, saying, that guy's a poor builder. The foundation's about to crumble. He's putting it on the wrong foundation. We understand, according to Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow because Jesus will be declared as Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You want to be reminded from Scripture? Look on the screen. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee, is it optional, church? No, will. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus' position, his lordship over you brings glory to God. Let that settle in. Your relationship your recognition of his lordship over your life brings glory to God. So when a person believes in Jesus, when, when God brings that delivery truck up and unloads grace, he brings that vehicle of grace to deliver salvation, when God does that, that person is saved. But more important than that, and maybe you think your salvation is the most important thing, According to the Bible, it's not. Your salvation is paramount, but God's glory is even more so. It, it takes a maturing believer to really grasp that. When a person believes in Jesus, they are saved, but more important, God is glorified. Our God deserves it. So when we declare Jesus as Lord, and by that church, I mean when we live it, when we live Jesus as Lord, we bring glory to God. Why? According to verse 5, for his namesake. In the first century, 
the name of a person meant way more than it does today. We've got lots of names in this auditorium right now. Individuals, Todd and Sharon and Sue and Mike and Bob, you know, we use these names to identify each other. And as the population on planet Earth increased in size, we had to attach last names to identify each other. But in the first century, the name meant the sum total of who the whole person is. That's why you see Paul continually using the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his position. Yeshua is his action as the Savior. Christ, Messiah, Savior of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, it sums up all that he is. So when he says, for the name's sake, he's talking about the sum total of our obedience is because of what Jesus stands for. We are the called of Jesus. God's reached out and called you his own. We belong to him, church. So there's no room here for an idea that people can accept Jesus as Savior without allowing him to be Lord. If you feel like this has been really weighty up to this point and, and very heavy, heavy stuff, hang on, it's about to get happy, okay? Go with me to verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome and called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a cool way of closing out. Last verse we're going to use for today. That we, if, you're, if you count yourself as a believer this morning, that we as believers are deeply loved by God is a truth acknowledged all the way through Scripture, right? Okay, we, we recognize that. It should leave us in awe. Long-established truth. So we get that part. But what's he talking about when he says we're called? But here's three ways I was working through it this week. I want you to see the things I came up with. In three ways that you're called specifically. You're called into a relationship. God called you there. He called you into this relationship, and then he called you to respond to that invitation. Many people are good with that, and they're okay, and they stop right there, and they forget we've been called into responsibility, called into relationship, and then to respond, and then into responsibility. So we really need to understand, as those people who are called, what does he mean when he says we're the beloved of God, and we're his saints? I want you to understand saints. It's going to make you walk out of here a little taller today, okay? I want you to understand what he's talking about when he says we're saints, Hagios is the word that's used. It means to be set apart. If you earned an income this week, or perhaps in your, your household there was income earned, and you decided, I'm going to set apart a certain part of my money to give to the work of God at the church, that would be called a Hagios action, all right? You're doing something by setting it apart and saying, this is for God. This portion I need to use to manage my family and take care of my responsibilities, this portion... I'm giving over to God. That's a hagios action. There are many things that were set apart for God throughout Scripture. So in the Old Testament, when you read about the Ark of the Covenant, most notably, when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, it's a place where God said, I would dwell upon that thing on earth. Well, that was hagios. But people are also hagios, holy to God. And so when you think of the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament, you think of a group of people who are set apart for God's purposes. We get that. We understand that. So how do we translate that into our world? When a person is set apart by God, they're set apart from the world, meaning we're made like him in his holiness. 
So to be set apart in that sense is to be made righteous. So question for you. What Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, did that make you righteous? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes, a thousand times. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we received that sacrifice, God made us righteous. See, what you should be seeing this is as an identity issue. Not who the world says you are. Not who your friends say you are. I want you to especially listen if you're under 30. You're deeply influenced by your sphere, by your culture. I've had a lot of 30 and younger people talk to me over the course of this weekend working through this. It's not about who your friends say you are. It's not even about who your family says you are. It's about who God says you are. God says you are holy. Are you living like it? You may be really uncomfortable with this thought of being compared to the saints because when you're thinking saints, I bet your mind is going to stained glass windows, right? Or, or you're thinking of like St. Paul on the front of a church someplace or, or St. Michael or St. Catherine. And maybe you're thinking of somebody has got a halo around their head. You really need to understand what God is saying to you when he calls you a saint. Now this, this title should earn you some degree of awkwardness. It should make you somewhat uncomfortable. You know why? Because it reminds you. It reminds you of the essential character of being a Christian. Like, I'm a saint? Really? Should I see myself that way? Chances are really good if you tell someone later today that you found out this morning that you're a saint, you're going to get a reaction, right? And people are going to say, what you been smoking? Okay. What? You're a I thought like the Pope made people saints. How, how does that work? Okay, Scripture says these are the saints. Now, likely, if you take it one step further and you tell one of your friends that you were set apart, you're going to get this response. Like what? Like you're, the, you're better than the rest of us? Is that what you're saying? There is a difference between being set apart from and set apart to. Set apart from is somebody who wants to go live like a hermit and hide out from the world. Set apart to is what's being spoken of here. Set apart to God's specific purposes. It is a positive, not a negative. You are distinctly set apart, called to be his people. That should leave us in awe in itself. And taken in its purest form, this word here, this word saint it contains this challenge to faithfulness because you've been called to live consistent with the character that's associated with that title. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, I'm not sure I like that because that's like intruding on my lifestyle. I remember when Charles Barkley was playing in the NBA, in, and this is in the 1990s, and think LeBron James okay, only with really bad attitude, okay? So 1990s, Charles Barkley is dominating the floor. He's a serious competitor. They called him Sir Charles because he was so intimidating on the floor. But unfortunately, he transferred his really powerful presence on the floor over to engaging with the fans who heckled him. 
You might remember this if you remember the 1990s. So Charles Barkley had this reputation of going after hecklers who were up in the stands. It, to the degree that sometimes he would even spit on people, right? Okay, so there's this one guy who's really ragging on him in a game where he's not playing so well. He walks over to the edge of the stands and he spits and he misses him and he spits on a little girl who's in the stadium, all right? Yeah, same reaction you have, right? Ooh. So the media after the game explodes on him. One guy comes right out and says, Mr. Barkley, you play for the National Basketball Association. You're paid millions of dollars you're a role model to the youth of this nation. Barkley's response is, I ain't no role model. I'm not doing this to be a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. It's not why I'm here. Charles Barkley, whether you like it or not, you are a role model, right? Church, in the same way, whether or not you're comfortable with it, God says, you belong to me. You said you're, you're saved by my grace. And it's amazing. And I give it to you as a gift. It's free. You have to understand you have been set apart distinctly different for the purposes of God. Remember who Paul's writing to? He's not writing to a bunch of people with their pictures on stained glass windows. These people in Rome, they're shopkeepers. They're street sweepers. They're converted prostitutes. They're champion warriors, prize fighters, gladiators. Individuals who are just trying to work out a daily living. And that's who Paul says, you are the holy ones of God. You are the saints. So church, if, if we are following Jesus, we're not only a saint, he also says, we are the beloved of God. Have you ever allowed yourself to believe that? Beloved means you're actually adored. You're cherished. I'm going to ask you to do something right now. You just do it under the quietness of your breath. Maybe you don't want anybody else to hear you, but just say this to God. You adore me. You adore me. That is an amazing thought, isn't it? I am cherished by the living God. It's one of the most emphasized truths of Scripture. That's why Jeremiah wrote what he did, Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Look, I want you to read that. Look at it on the screen. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you think that's a love that's going to go away? That love never fades, never perishes. Let me take you back to where we closed at last time we were together, and I'm going to close here again. Look at what Paul said about this love of God. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or falling stock markets or Great Britain leaving the European Union? Or whatever thing is going to come up this week you know nothing about, is that going to separate you from the love of Christ church? No. Look at what Paul's writing about. Swords, nakedness, peril. What's he talking? He's talking about things that happen on planet earth. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. You are mine. 
So this obedience of the faith that Paul is writing about here, he's talking about the ultimate purpose of God's calling on you. That you are the redeemed of the Lord, absolutely. That he desires that we become like him in holiness, yeah. Why? That we would be like a fragrant aroma, not only giving glory to God, but drawing other people towards him. Because naturally, you begin living that way, people are going to wonder, why are you so different? You ever smelled a really, really, really good perfume? I don't care if you smelled it on a guy or you smelled it on a girl. It just makes you go, oh, that's pretty good, right? That aroma, God uses that image in Scripture. When you're set apart for my purposes, you're like a fragrant aroma to me. What does an aroma do? It just permeates. It draws people in. That's the ultimate purpose. Your salvation, yep, absolutely. That you would draw other people's in, yep. That goal directs the life and the conduct of every believer. You can't do it on your own, can you, church? We need the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Are you going to have times where you stumble? Absolutely. But are you going to keep striving, pushing, reaching towards the goal of the high calling of Christ Jesus? That's what Paul wrote about. I die daily, he said. So I'm going to pray for us that way right now, that we would be known as a people who are striving after this holiness of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women who have willingly gathered, for the students who are here that you have imprinted them this morning. There are things they may have heard that will last their entire life with them about who they are in you. Father, I pray for every one of us that what we heard and what we processed will impact our conduct. The choices that we make even today and throughout the rest of this week and throughout the rest of our lives, even though you see us as holy, Father, cause us to strive after that identity as a saint, as a person who's been set apart for your purposes. And we willingly recognize we can't do this in our own strength and our own power, so we invite the full-on power of the Holy Spirit, shaping and directing and correcting where necessary. Father, we yield to you in that way. We pray for your power in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.